Okay, Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 and reading through verse 9. This is, again, a portion of Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. And he says in verse 8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together. God, give us ears to hear. Give us minds that understand. And give us hearts that receive your truth, which alone can set us free. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So for two weeks, we've been looking at Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. This is actually part seven in a series that I've entitled Surprised by Grace. We've been making our way methodically through the book of Jonah, a relatively well-known story, even if you didn't grow up in church. The most famous part of the story is the part where he gets swallowed by a fish, um, and that's what we've been looking at the last two weeks, not just the fact that he was swallowed by a fish, but specifically the prayer that he prays from the belly of the fish. And I noted uh, last week and the week before that like most desperate people, he begins to pray. It's understandable that Jonah begins to pray here. He's in a dire situation, a desperate situation. He was thrown overboard at his own request by the sailors to calm the storm. And Jonah, I'm sure, thought that was it for him. But God appointed a fish to swallow him. Uh, God again divinely intervenes. And rather than allow Jonah to die, uh, God saves Jonah. God rescues Jonah, not because Jonah deserved it, but because God is merciful. And so Jonah's in the belly of the fish and he's praying like most desperate people. He begins to pray. When we feel our desperation, we typically pray. I know that my prayers are oftentimes more fervent, more energetic when I'm feeling desperate, when I'm feeling at the end of my rope. And here Jonah is clearly at the end of his rope. He's clearly feeling desperate. So he begins to pray. And in this prayer, he acknowledges God's mercy and grace. He acknowledges his helplessness and his desperation, and he acknowledges God's help and God's deliverance. But there are signs, even in this prayer from the belly of the fish, that Jonah is still running from God. We've looked at this the last couple of weeks. I've noted this, the transition between verse 8 and 9, where you think perhaps in verse 8 he's confessing his own idolatry, He's confessing his own sin, but in fact, that's not what he's doing because we see a contrast in verse 9. So in verse 8, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, unlike them, worship you. And Bible scholars have pointed out that Jonah is most likely negotiating with God here. And he's using his goodness, his moral resume as currency to get God to do for him what he wants God to do for him. It's as if he's saying, those sailors worshiped idols. I worship you. I'm not like them. They are bad. I'm good. That should count for something, shouldn't it, God? He still thinks this world is divided into good people and bad people and that he's one of the good guys. 
And I mentioned last week that if you truly believe what the Bible says about sin, you can no longer divide the world into good guys and bad guys. You have to embrace what the Bible says about all of us, which is all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good. These are all the diagnostic declarations that the Bible gives, not just concerning who we might consider bad people, but us also. And so Jonah uh, is clearly still dividing the world into good guys and bad guys, and he's concluded that he's one of the good guys, and because he's one of the good guys, God owes it to him to be rescued and to give him the life he thinks he's earned. Okay, that's what's going on here in the prayer. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago that there are those who think, a whole bunch of people who think that Jesus had the Jonah story in mind when he told the parable of the prodigal son because there are so many parallels here. I've referenced the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 a couple times during this series. And just to summarize what happened, Jesus tells this story. It's not something that actually happened. It's a parable. It's a story that Jesus told to make a point. And he tells a story about a father who had two sons and the younger son went to his father um, and said, listen, I want my share of the inheritance now so I can go live however I want. And in doing so, he was basically saying, you're dead to me since inheritances were not received until the parent died. He was essentially saying, you're dead to me. Give me my money now that I'm gonna get when you die so I can go do what I want with it. And the father, uh, in some ways, foolishly gives it to him. At least it would appear to be foolish from our vantage point. Gives it to him. And the son goes and wastes his life uh, in riotous living in a far country until he comes to the end of himself and he comes to the end of his resources. Resources. And because he's at the end of his resources, all of his friends disappear, and he finds himself working at a pig farm. And because he's so hungry, he's actually being forced to eat the food that he serves the pigs. And he realizes in the pigsty that the servants in his father's house eat better than this. So he gets up and he makes his way home. And of course, the father sees him from far off, runs to greet him, wraps his arms around his prodigal son, and uh, says, we're going to throw you a party. Welcome home. And everyone's at the party except the older brother. The older brother's outside, and he's not happy about this arrangement at all. He's not happy about the fact that his dad is giving a party to his rebellious younger brother who was so disrespectful to his father um, and disrespectful to the family. And so the father and older son have a conversation at the end also. Um, and the reason I summarize that story and bring it up here is because in that parable, the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus shows that there are two basic ways in which we run from God, not just one. There are two ways that we can run from God, not just, not just one. The younger brother represents the obvious way that people run from God. He, he gives himself up to immoral living. He, he breaks the rules. He's a quintessential lawbreaker. He's defiant. In the person of the younger brother, Jesus gives us a depiction of sin that is very common. He's self-indulgent. He's rebellious. He's behaviorally out of control. He's licentious. He's carefree. Basically, he's just a bad dude doing bad things, okay? And we can, we can pick that out of a crowd from a thousand miles away. Jesus, in that parable, by giving us 
the depiction he does of the younger brother, uh, shows us what is very commonly known as sin. This is just a bad guy doing bad things. Um, But it's the older brother who represents another way of running from God, a not-so-obvious way. Rather than giving himself up to immoral living, this elder brother devotes himself to moral living. He keeps the rules. He's a quintessential law keeper. He's not defiant. He's compliant. Completely different posture. He's self-disciplined, he's obedient, and he's behaviorally under control. He's not wild and reckless like his younger brother. He's dependable, he's responsible, he's a hard worker. He's basically a good dude doing good things. Okay, so the contrast is clear between these two brothers. The older brother is a rule keeper, a compliant, obedient rule keeper, and the younger brother is a rule breaker, a defiant, rebellious, carefree, licentious rule breaker. So we have two sons in this story, one good and one bad, okay? This is what Jesus is trying to get across in that parable. But if we look a little closer, we realize that both brothers and the ways of life that they represent are more alike than it may seem. So Tim Keller, who wrote a remarkable book on this parable, says it this way. What did the younger son want most out of life? He chafed at having to partake of his family's assets under his father's supervision. He wanted to make his own decisions and have unfettered control of his portion of the wealth. How did he get that? He did it with a bold power play a flagrant defiance of community standards, a declaration of complete independence. What did the older son most want? If we think about it, we realize that he wanted the same thing as his brother. He was just as resentful of the father as the younger son. He too wanted the father's goods rather than the father himself. However, while the younger brother went far away, the elder brother stayed close and never disobeyed. That was his way to get what he wanted. His unspoken demand is, I have never disobeyed you. Now you have to do things in my life the way that I want them to be done. So upon a more careful analysis and examination, both sons are much more alike than would typically seem. The elder brother is out for himself as much as the younger brother. They're just going about it in two different ways. One is doing it by breaking the rules, and one is doing it by keeping the rules. But both are equally committed to their own self-salvation projects, their own self-rescue efforts. The younger brother is trying to find freedom and fullness of life by being bad. The older brother is trying to find freedom and fullness of life by being good. And while it may seem that the older brother is the better brother, Jesus shows that the older brother's rule-keeping and goodness has created as much distance from the father as the younger brother's rule-keeping and badness. Now, when Jesus is telling this parable, the Pharisees are sitting there. So he wants to make a point, a very strong point. Um... 
what formed the barrier between the elder brother and his father were not his sins, at least the way we typically understand sin. What formed the barrier between the elder brother and his father was his pride in his own goodness. It wasn't his unrighteousness that kept him from his father. It was his self-righteousness that kept him from his father. And Jesus wants us to see that it's not the badness we know we have that keeps us from God, but rather the goodness we think we have. That's what creates distance between us and God. So by the time we get to the end of the parable, it's the good older brother who is in a bad spiritual place and the bad younger brother who's in a good spiritual place. The immoral younger brother enters the father's feast. The moral elder brother does not. Now, to Jesus' original audience, this would have been shocking, okay? Maddening. This went against everything they had always been taught about God, all of the religious notions about God. Everything they had been taught was being turned upside down and inside out. Isn't it interesting that in the Bible, it's the immoral person who gets the gospel before the moral person? Always. It's always the, the unrighteous younger brother who gets it before the self-righteous older brother. In this story, we see the unrighteous younger brother who eventually sees his sin and his need for forgiveness, and the self-righteous older brother does not. It's the people in the Bible that we see over and over again. It's the people who know they're weak who run to God, not the people who think that they're strong. This is common throughout the Bible. It's the, it's the people who know that they're impure who are amazed at grace, not the people who think that they're pure. So Robert Capon says, uh, the greatest writer, in my opinion, says, um, you know, the, the parables just make mincemeat out of people's religious expectations. Just mincemeat. Bad people are scolded. I mean, bad people are rewarded, like the unrighteous younger brother. Good people are scolded, like the self-righteous older brother. And basically, Jesus just liberally douses all of our religious conventions with cold water. Just turns things inside out and upside down. I love, Capon says this, which is so true, so true. The Pharisee is the kind of person that every church would be happy to welcome as a member because he does everything he's supposed to do. It's true. I've said for a long time that um, if we're not attracting the same kinds of people that Jesus attracted, we're not preaching the same message that Jesus preached. And oftentimes what you find, sadly, in my experience anyway, is that churches tend to be filled with the kind of people who are repulsed by Jesus and the kind of people who would never darken the door of a church are the kinds of people who flock to Jesus. Well, that's a problem. That should be an indication that what we're saying is not the same thing that Jesus said. Uh, I don't remember how long ago it was. Sometime in the spring, I reminded you of someone who once said that the devil's masterpiece is the Pharisee, not the prostitute. Okay, well... What in the world does all of this have to do with Jonah? Okay? If you're following me and you're 
thinking with me right now. You're thinking, I thought we were studying Jonah. Why are we looking at Luke chapter 15? Why are we talking so much about this, the parable of these two lost brothers when we're talking about Jonah? Well, the whole story of Jonah is built around Jonah running from God and God running after Jonah. And in Jonah's running, we see the younger brother's strategy and the older brother's strategy, both. In chapter one, we see Jonah, like the younger brother, running as far away from God as he can get. He's an outright defiance to God's calling and God's plan. God says, go to Nineveh, and Jonah unashamedly runs in the opposite direction. He's just defiant as he can be, absolutely defiant. Rebellious, God says here, I say there. Well, there are many of us who find ourselves in that kind of posture on a regular basis. God says, do this, don't do that, and we find ourselves doing the exact opposite. So in this sense, Jonah is running from God by breaking the rules. We see this in chapter one. He's, he's uh, in outright defiance of God. At that point, he's thinking that he can get what he wants by being disobedient. If I'm disobedient, I'll get what I want. I've told you that when I was 16 years old, I dropped out of high school and got kicked out of my house. And even though my parents had raised us in a Christian home, I walked away from Christianity, not because I had any intellectual issues with the Christian faith. I just, I just saw God as this cosmic killjoy who was trying to get in the way of the fun I wanted to have. That was it. And because of that, I decided to run in the opposite direction. I wanted to go the opposite way. I was sure that finding freedom and fullness of life would come from disobeying God, would come from going in the opposite direction that God wanted me to go. Because if God is overseeing me and superintending my life, he's gonna ask me to do things I don't wanna do. And he's gonna tell me I can't do things that I want to do. And so disobeying God, breaking the rules, breaking God's law became my pathway toward freedom, or so I thought. But then we get to chapter two, and we see that Jonah's plan of defiance hasn't worked out the way he hoped it would. So he employs a different strategy, the strategy of the elder brother. Essentially, he's saying, if I can't get what I want by being disobedient, then I will get what I want by being obedient. He submits to God in the belly of the fish, not to give God what God wants, but to get from God what he wants. And we see that play out in chapter three and four, as we'll see in the next few weeks. In other words, Jonah is running from God as much in his compliance as he was in his defiance, which is actually a much more dangerous form of flight. Why? Here's why, because our sin lurks in our goodness more deceptively than it does in our badness. Uh, at a conference that we used to host in Fort Lauderdale a number of years ago called Liberate, a friend of mine, Ray Ortland, said these words in his message. He said, we feel the pain of our bad sins, but our good sins feel good which makes them more poisonous. A man who commits adultery might feel bad about it, but a man who looks down on an adulterer probably feels good about that. 
Our good sins don't warn us. They don't shock us. They lie to us. They flatter us, and we love that flattery. Our lying hearts tell us we're just fine, but we're not fine. Superficial appearance on the outside is the very thing religion is for. Denial is the whole point of religion. Not facing ourselves is the whole point of religion. Basically, my friend Ray was making the point that sin lurks in our goodness more deceptively than it does in our badness. And so J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop from the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, said, there is something to be pardoned in even our best works, that even our prayers of confession need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. So uh, the, the difference is if I'm doing something really bad, I know it's bad, I know it's something I shouldn't do, but if I'm really, really proud of the fact that I'm not doing what that person's doing, and I feel self-righteous about the fact that I'm not as bad as that person, that is equally as sinful. But this is more deceptive because we're doing the right thing. We're doing the good thing. We're not doing the bad thing. We're doing the right thing. We're doing the good thing. We're doing the, the upstanding thing, the virtuous thing. When we are proud of our virtue, it is a vice. Okay, it's not just that it, when the Bible says that um, there are two kinds of sins, so to speak, there are sins of commission, things we do that we ought not to do, and there are sins of omission, things that we should do that we don't do. One of the things it tells us is that there is nothing that we do or fail to do that does not need to be forgiven, that does not require God's work on our behalf. And so it's the good things that we do that we become proud of. It's, it's all of those inclinations in our heart that want to separate the human race into good guys and bad guys and make ourselves a good guy or to think of ourselves as a good guy. We're comparing ourselves all the time to people, whether we realize it or not. One of the ways that I can quickly make myself feel better is by comparing myself to someone who's worse. I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than him. I mean, I, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than her. I may, not be, I may not be the perfect parent, but my gosh, I'm better than that person, okay? Or the perfect husband or whatever the case may be. Um, and so we run in both directions all the time. The guys and I were talking about this on Wednesday night. And I said, it's not that some of us are younger brother types and run from God by breaking the rules, and some of us are older brother types and run from God by keeping the rules. But we are running from God in both directions all the time. We run in both directions all the time. Sometimes we try to get what we want by doing the wrong thing, and sometimes we try to get what we want by doing the right thing. So, for example, when we're trying to take something from someone else, it is very self-serving. It's obviously self-serving. But if we're trying to get something from someone else by being nice and loving, that's just as self-serving. We're just employing a different strategy. We do the same thing with God. Religion says, God owes me if I obey him. 
If I do the right things and I keep the rules, then he owes me certain things. We tend to think that we can obligate God with our goodness. If we do the right things and avoid the wrong things, God must take care of us in the ways we want him to. He owes me answered prayers and blessings as payment for my obedience. Now, we may not explicitly say that, but that comes out when we find ourselves complaining to God that things aren't going a certain way, and in our complaint, we at least imply that we've done enough stuff to warrant God's blessing in this situation. That God owes it to us to take care of us and to give us the life that we want or to give us the situation that we want. In that sense, we are like Jonah in the belly of the fish, negotiating with God and using the currency of our morality or our goodness or whatever the case may be. The point is that we try to be our own savior either by breaking the rules or keeping them. That's the point. And this means that there are two ways apart from God's grace that we try to get the life we want and both ways lead to dead ends. Whether I am keeping a rule to find happiness or breaking a rule to find happiness, I'm still relying on myself. I'm still depending on a ladder rather than a cross to save me, to rescue me. The truth is that I need to be saved from my weaknesses and my strengths. I need to be saved from my badness and my goodness. I need to be saved from my disobedience and my obedience. I need to be saved from my spiritual disabilities and my spiritual abilities. I need to be saved from all strategies to save myself. Whether it's keeping a rule, breaking a rule, being obedient or being disobedient. I need to be saved from all strategies to save myself because if my ultimate hope rests on me in any way at all, I am screwed. We all are. Well, the gospel is the good news that God's massive Mercy tracks down runners regardless of which direction they're running. You know, while our sin, either in its unrighteous form or its self-righteous form, while our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches farther. In the person of Jesus, God saves bad people who know that they're bad and he saves bad people who think that they're good. I've said this before that God, when Jesus says, um, I haven't come for the righteous but for the sinner, he's not saying there are two kinds of people in this world, bad people and good people, and uh, I've, come for the, I've come for the bad people because the good people don't need me. They're doing fine on their own. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there are two kinds of people, um, bad people who know that they're bad, and bad people who think that they're good. And I've come for the bad people who know that they're bad simply because they're the ones who more readily hear my voice. The bad people who think that they're good have a much harder time seeing their need for rescue because they think they're doing just fine. Um, and so in the person of Jesus, God saves people who know that they're bad and he saves 
bad people who think that they're good. He pursues rebels who run from God in defiance, and he pursues rebels who run from God in compliance. He goes after people who think God owes them for their obedience, and he goes after people who think God hates them for their disobedience. He goes after both. It's just another way of saying he comes after you and he comes after me. In this sense, his rescuing, pursuing grace is no respecter of persons. After all, your, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace, ever. And so from Jonah employing different strategies, which in so many different ways illustrate the different strategies we see in running from God in Luke chapter 15, the good news is that whichever direction we run at any given time, God is big enough, God is gracious enough, and he's merciful enough to come after us in whatever direction we go all the time. Let's pray together.